I want to pick up where we left off before we left on my time away. We are doing, if you're new with us, we are doing a series through the Gospels, and it's called the Harmony of the Gospels. We're harmonizing all the Gospel accounts, putting them together as we march through uh, the various Gospel writers' account of Jesus' life and ministry. And we are in the very early stages. We're still in the birth narratives. And Luke chapter 1, we left off last time with the announcement to Zechariah of the birth of John the Baptist. And this morning I want us to begin, because this is going to be a two or three week event, I want us to begin to look at the uh, announcement of Jesus' birth. So read with me from verse 26 of Luke chapter 1, if you would. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of God, or the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. Don't you love that? I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. You know, in just four short months... The most wonderful time of the year will be upon us. What time of the year is that? Christmas. Are you ready? (laughs) You can almost hear the carols now, can't you? Christmas is probably, I think it's safe to say, Christmas is probably the most widely celebrated holiday even around the world. Do you know that? But it is also, though it's celebrated, it's also, I think, probably the most misunderstood and misused. Christmas, like uh, unlike other holidays, um, does not honor uh, famous people. It doesn't honor uh, or commemorate significant historical events. I, we have we have Presidents' Day. We have the Fourth of July. We have uh, Veterans' Day and, and and such. But Christmas Christmas does do something. It honors a divine person, and it honors a divine event. Christmas does not celebrate human achievement, but rather divine accomplishment. God has done something, and this is what we commemorate. This is what we celebrate. All the stuff of contemporary Christmas, the Shopping, the credit cards, the parking lots, the malls, the decorations, the parties, all, all the things that 
are of contemporary Christmas. They do not reflect the true meaning of Christmas. You see, there's nothing man-made about Christmas and about the Christmas narrative, about the Christmas account. It is the most miraculous, compelling narrative in history. It is communicated to us by the Holy Spirit. This dramatic account, this momentous event of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ into this world. When you just stop and think about that, here is God breaking in now to time and space and history, taking on a body, becoming one of us. What an event. Those who truly celebrate Christmas do so by remembering the reality of Christmas. And the reality of Christmas is that God sent His one and only Son for a purpose, to die for the sins of the world. This is really what Christmas is about. Jesus came, God sent his son to die for sin. Kind of gets lost amongst all the partying and the gift giving, doesn't it? And although the most complete accounts of Jesus' birth are recorded here in the Gospels of Luke and Matthew, those are not the first biblical references to the coming of the Son of God. You have in the Old Testament reference after reference after reference, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy of this event that is, that is encapsulated in these two Gospels. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you'll recall, no sooner had Adam and Eve plunged the human race into sin through their disobedience, then God brings a promise, doesn't he? And what was the promise? The promise was, he said, the seed of the woman. Someone's coming. There's going to be a human being who's going to come. Born of the woman. Some particular woman. Not, a, not generic. The definite article is used. And he's going to come. What's he going to come for? First John chapter 3, verse 8 tells us, He's come to destroy the devil's work and indeed destroy the devil himself. He's come to release the captives to set us free. You recall at the end of the book of Genesis in chapter 49 when the patriarch Jacob is uh, blessing his sons. He's, he's giving them their, the patriarchal blessing, if you will. And he addresses Judah particularly. And he says to Judah, or says about Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Notice this now. Until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. So there's somebody who's coming that the nations will pay obeisance to. Someone. This seed of the woman way back in Genesis Jacob, again, alludes to in this prophecy. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses had in mind the future coming Messiah when he says to the Israelites this. Let me read to you from, from Deuteronomy, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. 
For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see his great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. Now, who might that prophet be, do you think? Well, we have... We have we have hindsight, don't we? We can look back and we say, that's got to be, this prophet like Moses has got to be nothing, none other than Jesus. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 records God's promise that His Son, the Messiah, would come and rule the world. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. This is, what a What a promise. And Isaiah says very simply that the virgin, the virgin, will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So you see this continuing revelation throughout the Old Testament of the identity. Somebody's coming. God with us. He's going to be born of a virgin. Further on in Isaiah in chapter 9... We get more information. Isaiah says to, to, the, to the Jews, he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called. Now notice the four designations given to this man-child born into Israel. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is God coming. Emmanuel. Daniel, chapter 9. Daniel tells us in chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, he tells us the exact time of this coming. In Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, Micah tells us the exact place where he'll be born. Where was he born? Bethlehem. You go back to Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53. In Isaiah 52 and 53, you read those chapters, and and Isaiah details all of his sufferings, his death, in our place. I want to submit to you that the Old Testament is absolutely rich with other prophecies concerning the life and the ministry of Jesus if you will, in Luke's Gospel, at the end of Luke's Gospel, after the resurrection. All the disciples are, 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 are filtering away. There are two guys who are walking on a road to a little town called Emmaus. Do you remember that? Luke chapter 24. And they're kind of downcast, perplexed, and all of a sudden a third fellow joins them. Luke says they were prevented from recognizing him. Who might that have been? That was Jesus. And so Jesus queries them. And he says, he says, why are you, what's happening? You're dumb cast. He says, oh man, where have you been? Don't you know what's happened in Jerusalem? Now notice what Luke says. Verse 25, he, Jesus, said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Can you imagine having a Bible study with Jesus? <laughs> I mean, you're just walking on the road and Jesus going, you're going, whoa, I never saw that. Doesn't it blow your mind when, when the Holy Spirit illuminates a passage of Scripture? You go, whoa. The promise of a Savior for centuries was the hope of the believing remnant of Israel. They hoped and hoped. They knew these prophecies that those Old Testament saints trusted that one day their Messiah would come. And that promise continued its realization with Gabriel's next appearance. And this time he appears to a young woman. Now, the angel Gabriel had already appeared earlier to Zechariah, hadn't he? Zechariah was ministering in the temple, and and the angel appears to him, and he just freaks out about it. And uh, that appearance to, to Zechariah broke a 400-year silence of God in terms of speaking to his people, any kind of revelation. So 400 years, nobody heard from God. No prophet, uh, no testimony, no nothing. So now Gabriel shows up. He's in the temple, speaks to Zechariah. Zechariah freaks out. And then six months later, Gabriel shows up again. This time with a revelation that would be the most significant birth announcement. You know, we have our kids, we send out birth announcements. I want you to know, look at the picture, look at this little guy. This is the most significant birth announcement. This is the birth announcement of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now this announcement, you would think, because it's so important and concerns the Lord Jesus himself, you would think this birth announcement would be made where? In the temple courts in Jerusalem, the center of Jewish life and culture. Was it made there? No. No, it was not. This announcement was made in a town in Galilee called Nazareth. You have to appreciate this. Nazareth, Nazareth was actually, it wasn't even a town. It was a village. It was a little podunk village. Maybe a couple of hundred people lived there. It was 75 to 100 miles north of Jerusalem. So small and insignificant was Nazareth that it's not even mentioned in the entire Old Testament. It's not mentioned in any of the Talmud, in the Talmudic writings, the rabbis. It's not even mentioned by Josephus, who is the, the, uh, the, the, the Roman historian of, of, of Judaism. Great writer. Insignificant village. It was off the beaten path, so to speak. Far from the important centers of Jewish culture, Jewish religion. Galilee, by the way, where Nazareth was located, 
was also known as Galilee of the Gentiles because of its proximity to the Gentile districts up in the north. I think, I can't be absolutely conclusive about this, but I think it's reasonable to believe that this announcement was made in Nazareth to indicate that Jesus would be the Savior, not only of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles, to all who would believe. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in his letters to the churches. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 24, he says, But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks. And so it's, it would then be appropriate for, for this birth announcement to be made in this district. Does that make sense to you? Now, in contrast to Gabriel's announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, that announcement was made to an elderly priest in the temple. The announcement of Jesus' birth came not to an elderly priest, came to a young girl in this insignificant village called Nazareth. Her name, Mary. Mary. And she is described to us as a virgin. In Jewish life, Jewish practice, girls were usually pledged or betrothed or engaged to use more modern language, at the age of 12 or 13. Married then at the end of a one-year betrothal period. So you're 12 or 13, you're marriageable. A year's time would pass, that would be the betrothal period. At the end of that year, then you would be married. The betrothal was always arranged by the parents. Doesn't that sound great? They're always scoping out a good family. (laughs) Ah, a good family. But it was always arranged by the parents. And it was a more binding legal agreement than our modern engagements. Only death or divorce could sever the contract. The couple would be, even during their their betrothal period, would be referred to as husband and wife. If the betrothed husband would die, then the girl would be considered a widow, even during the betrothal period. The couple wouldn't live together, however. They would not have sexual relations during that period. But during the year-long betrothal period, the girl would prove her faithfulness and her purity. And the boy was to prepare a home for his bride. They were to work towards this relationship. When the year was up, there would be the wedding. There would be a seven-day wedding feast and party, after which the couple would then begin their life together as husband and wife, and only then would the marriage be consummated. So here's Mary now. Mary, we're told, is pledged. She is betrothed to a man named Joseph. Though by trade, only an ordinary carpenter, by lineage or descent, he is in the line of King David, the greatest of Israel's kings. And this would be the line through which the Messiah would come, David's line. Now, if you remember back when we studied Matthew's genealogy, Matthew's genealogy traces Jesus' ancestry through Joseph, showing that he, Joseph, descended from David 
And hence, Jesus would also assume that lineage. Jesus' claim to the throne of David would be as Joseph's legal heir. Remember, he was adopted by Joseph, so he became a legal son. Now, like Joseph, Mary also traced her ancestry back to David in Luke's genealogy. Luke's genealogy gives us Jesus' ancestry through his mother, Mary. So you've got Matthew's genealogy, Luke's genealogy. Jesus would inherit from Joseph, his adoptive father, the legal right to David's throne, and while his physical descent from David would come through his mother, Mary. So in every legitimate sense, both legally and physically, Jesus Christ was the son of David, and he is born to be Israel's king. Now we're told two things in verse 28. Notice with me verse 28 of our passage. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. What two things does the angel say to her? She is first what? Highly favored. What's the second thing? The Lord is with her. Now, I just have a question. If you're a Christian, if you're born again, are these things true of you? Can you turn to your neighbor and say, Greetings, you are highly favored, and the Lord is with you. Is that fair? What do you think? Yeah, do it. Turn to your neighbor and say, Greetings, you are highly favored, and the Lord is with you. Now, when was the last time someone said to you, You were highly favored? Isn't that nice to hear? And the Lord is with you. He is? Yes, He is. Being highly favored, she has nothing to fear. Being highly favored, she has nothing to fear. She was indeed to be the recipient of God's grace. Now, why? Why choose her? Was it because she was so holy? Was it because there was something intrinsically worthy about her that set her above every other Jewish girl? No. Every, every righteous Jewish girl and family, they knew, they knew all the prophecies. They knew that a virgin would be called to give birth to the Son, to, to the Messiah. This was the hope of every young woman in Israel growing up. So what, what is it that caused God to pick Mary? Was she so special? Did she live a perfectly holy life? No. She, like all, all of us, was a sinner in need of God's grace. Now, this is just a bit of an aside. The greeting, when the angel says to her, you are highly favored. That greeting has been erroneously used as the basis of a prayer, a prayer known as the Ave Maria or the Hail Mary. Now, if you grew up Roman Catholic like I did, you know the prayer, Hail Mary, 
full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. How many Catholics do we have in here? Yeah. So you know what I'm talking about. Well, what happened is that that phrase, highly favored, was erroneously translated from the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible. And it was translated, full of grace. That's not what it says. That's not the literal translation of that phrase in the Greek. Literally, it's having been favored. It doesn't say full of grace. And yet that has formed the basis for that prayer. The erroneous promise then... And the premise of this is that Mary has been granted and possesses fullness of grace, which she then dispenses or bestows to others. That false and unbiblical view of Mary would then therefore become an integral part of what has been known as the veneration or worship of Mary. Uh, If you grew up in the Catholic Church, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This blasphemes the Lord Jesus Christ by worshiping another. It's it's just that simple. I don't want to be mean about it, but this is the truth. In reality, Mary herself was a humble, redeemed sinner. She was not sinless from conception, as we were taught. We were taught there's a, the, uh, the, the, the feast of the Immaculate Conception, so that we were taught that Mary was conceived without sin. No, no, no. She was just like all of us, conceived in sin. Nor is Mary the co-redeemer of mankind, along with Jesus. Another thing we were taught. Sinners are justified as a gift of God's grace through the redemption that came by who? Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 24. There's no other name there. Through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Mary does not hear prayers. Mary does not answer prayers. Mary does not intercede for anyone. Because the Bible tells us there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. One mediator. You go right to Jesus. Right to him. So this doctrine has arisen. I quite frankly wonder if sometimes Mary isn't terribly embarrassed by by people's worshiping her and venerating her. Gabriel's second statement to her, the Lord is with you, I think speaks of God's enabling of her. If you recall back in the book of Joshua in chapter 1, when God had had commanded Joshua now to take the people into the promised land to cross over the Jordan River, was Joshua eager and willing and excited to do that? No, he was knock-kneed, scared to death, wasn't he? Feeling totally inadequate. Anybody ever feel totally inadequate when you be like, believe that God's calling you to do something? Lead a growth group. <laughs> Go to a growth group. 
No, the angel of the Lord came to Joshua chapter 1 and said, Do not be afraid. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you, enabling you. You're going to do this. You can do this. Trust in the Lord. There is something going to happen to Mary's life in the not too distant future. She needs to know the Lord is with her to enable her, to strengthen her. Realizing that she was an unworthy sinner, she even says in verse 47 of this chapter, in her own prayer, she called God her Savior. And only sinners need a Savior. Now Luke tells us that Mary was greatly troubled. She was greatly troubled, not at Gabriel's appearance. Remember like Zechariah was greatly troubled at, 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 at Gabriel's appearance in the temple? She's not troubled at his appearance. She's troubled at his what? At his words. What are you saying? Mary was greatly perplexed. Greatly perplexed. Would you be greatly perplexed? Because she knew that she was a sinner and did not understand why God had favored her. Me? 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 Now, I talk to people all the time and say, why hasn't God used me? I don't know. (laughs) Can't quite put my finger on it. Why aren't I highly favored? (laughs) But then he says to her in verse 30, Don't be afraid, Mary. Don't be afraid. You have found favor with God. He had come to her with a message of blessing, not a message of judgment. He had come to her with words of encouragement, much like Noah. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, we read these words directed to Noah. The eyes of the Lord are on you. The eyes, you have found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Same thing for Mary. She has found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Why Mary? Why had she found favor? God had sovereignly chosen to use her. Sovereignly chosen to use her in the carrying out of his redemptive purposes. The issue is not her merit. The issue is not her worthiness. But rather God's sovereign grace. Which, like all his ways is ultimately beyond our understanding. Have you ever tried to figure God out? Oh, I got it all figured out. Right. And as soon as you think you got it all figured out, it doesn't go the way you think it should go. What does Isaiah say? He says, he says God says, my ways are what? Higher. My thoughts are higher than you. You, you cannot figure out what God's doing beyond what he's revealed to us here. You can't speculate. And we're so good at speculating, aren't we? Mary was very human. She was both troubled, she was afraid. She did not understand 
how God could so greatly favor a person like herself. She never expected, never expected in a million years to be greatly favored by him. I submit to you, that is the essence of humility. That is the essence of deep humility. Mary evidently was not a proud, self-centered, flighty, or frivolous young lady as so many are today. She wasn't self-conscious about herself. She didn't feel like she merited or deserved the attention of others. She was simply a young lady who loved God and who had determined to live a pure and responsible life. However, Mary never dreamed that she was anyone special. How could she, how could she, so ordinary and humble, do anything special for God? What a striking example Mary is. Mary, I think, reflects the person whom God unexpectedly chooses to use. He just taps you on the shoulder and says, come, come. You see him choosing his disciples. Come follow me. Would you have chosen those guys? I wouldn't. Want them on your church council? No. She brings no outstanding credentials to the task. She lives on the edge of the nation. She brings nothing on her resume other than humble availability and a willingness to serve. Humble availability and a willingness to serve. These characteristics, I think, are the most basic ones anyone can offer God. Humble availability and a willingness to serve, right? Here I am, Lord. Take me and use me. James reminds us that God opposes the proud, but he gives what? Grace to the humble. Well, I'm humble. How come God doesn't use me? I don't know. Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Psalm 138, verse 6. Though the Lord is on high, he looks upon the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. I think that's the key. If my people called by my name would what? Humble themselves. Man, I'll bless them. So he puts her into use in his plan. He's going to take her through a process for which she has no training. She has no preparation. He simply promises that he'll be with her. He'll be with her in this journey. And she responds 
by being willing to go on the ride. <laughs> okay. Get in, strap down, and hold on. Here we go. After Gabriel's greeting, Mary then heard, then she hears about this gracious work of God in her life and what it's going to be. Now, if she was greatly troubled at his greeting, what she hears next has to blow her mind. Would you agree? Greatly perplexed? Greatly troubled? She has to be dumbfounded at the very next thing he says to her. Now Mary knows, Mary knows there's only one way that she could conceive a son, and that would be through sexual relations with a man. She also knew that she had not had such relations. Her response in verse 34, well, how will this be since I'm a virgin? How is this going to happen? The concept of a pregnant virgin. Get your mind around that one. Pregnant virgin. Square circle. Married bachelor. Well, there are some of those, I guess. This is utterly inconceivable to her. And nevertheless, Gabriel's stunning announcement would indeed fulfill those words from Isaiah 7, 14, that a virgin will be with child and give birth to a son. She knew that passage. Mary, without the seed of a man, would conceive in her womb and give birth to a son. That staggering promise of a divine miracle was far, far beyond her understanding or any human comprehension. How is this going to happen? And that we'll discuss next time. Okay? Are you ready? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this miracle and thank you for your love and for your provision. Thank you, Lord, for your word that reveals these things to us. Thank you, God, that you cared enough to send the very best. We worship you this morning. Keep us mindful, O Lord, of your grace. Thank you that we, as your sons and daughters, that we are highly favored and that you are with us. Thank you for that confidence. Thank you for that promise. We love you this morning. You are indeed a great God and a marvelous Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Turn to your-